Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. Joined by my newest buddy, JJ. JJ is or was a terminally ill cancer patient whose life was saved with a clinical trial, um, but he will have to do chemo for the rest of his life. Uh, JJ, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. Honored to be here. So let, let's rewind real quick. Before cancer, uh, before any of this stuff, what were you like? What were your hobbies? What could I catch you doing on a Saturday night? Uh, well, most of my life was spent with sports and friends. Like I was a huge into football, basketball, ran track, did that through my first two years of college, playing college football. And then uh, would love to hang out with friends. So you probably would catch me at a sports bar, watching sports, drinking a lot of beer and just hanging out. So pretty much uh, like an all-American guy, pretty much what I am right now. Yeah, pretty much. That was movies and sports, TV shows and filled up my time between work. Yeah. So what age were you when you got your diagnosis? I was 27. And what went through your head when the doctor told you you had cancer? Uh, it, it was a shock because in my mind, the only thing I knew about colon cancer was that something my grandpa should have, not me. And only thing I knew about cancer was what I seen on, you know, TV shows and movies. So I automatically was like, going to lose my hair, going to lose weight and possibly probably die. And that's all I ever knew about cancer until I found myself in the middle of it. So maybe were you like, uh, angry? Were you sad, depressed? It, I, I think I went through the whole spectrum of emotions, like really quick because I got diagnosed and then within a week and a half I was in surgery. So I went through the disbelief, anger, the like hardness, hardship of telling my friends and family about it. And then I was just angry at the world for a while. And then I finally was like, accepted and put in my mind that, all right, this is my next obstacle. Go do everything they tell me and then get my life back. Yeah. So before you actually got your diagnosis, did, were there any signs or anything? Were you sick? Yeah, there once I, the day I got diagnosed, the moment they were like, you got a huge mass in your colon before they even biopsied it, it everything lined up because the January of that year, I, I got really bad out of shape after I quit playing football. So I would weigh 315 pounds January 1st of 2015. So I went hardcore into like a diet, CrossFit. And around Memorial Day, I started feeling the throbbing in my abdomen. And in my mind, pull the muscle because you're doing two a days, getting ready for a CrossFit competition. Ignore it. Wait till after the competition. You do that. You'll take a little break. It'll get better. But throughout that summer, I kept losing weight quicker than I ever had. The pain would go from really bad to almost non-existent, back and forth. And I had zero energy. I was going to bed at like 7 o'clock in the evening. Wow. And then toward the end, wasn't able to use the bathroom. I convinced myself that was my diet. Like, oh, you changed your diet completely. That's why this is happening. 
But soon as I heard the word mass in my colon could be cancer, everything lined up and I was like, you don't even need a biopsy. I know that's what it is because it makes perfect sense now. Damn. So, so you stopped playing football and then you said you gained a lot of weight, got out of shape. And then you started kicking ass, got back into CrossFit, started um, losing weight. And that's when all this hit while you were doing CrossFit. Yes. Holy shit. So damn, because you always hear that it's usually like a lifestyle thing. And man, if you do these things like CrossFit or whatever, then you're safe. Did the doctor give you like any explanation as to maybe why? Uh, Yeah, after a while, like I got sent off to do genetic testing because I had no family history of like people that were diagnosed with colon cancer. So they did a like the genetic testing and I tested positive for a thing called Lynch syndrome, which is a genetic uh, mutation that my body doesn't recognize the mismatched cells anywhere from my mouth through my rectum. So I, I have a higher possibility of cancer anywhere through there. And it is passed through our family, but none of my brothers or sisters tested positive for it. And genetic testing is so new that they were like your grandma, your you know grandma's brothers, sisters, they could have had it and passed it down. That's where in the line of your family, we just didn't know about it until the last few years. So you were born with this? Yes. Fuck, man. It's like... <laughs> Can't we start testing for some of this stuff, man? It's so unfortunate. It, let's just say hypothetically, they knew when you were born that you had this condition. Do you think anything would be different? Yeah, that's one of the big things I'm doing in my advocacy work now is working with the genetic company to try to convince doctors to do a blood test with people's physical so they will just know of mutations. So that means the doctor, when you go in for your yearly physical can run blood work or do tests to make sure. And it might not stop you from having that, but you can find it a lot quicker to where it won't progress to be such so bad whenever they do find it. Is it possible for a person to get tested for this, this gene now? Yeah, it's just a blood test. Now they will, uh, they take a vial of blood and there's a genetic companies where you would go that send it off, it's kind of expensive right now, like everything in the medical world, but they test for about 48 uh, genetic mutations. And then like once, say you get that, something comes back, then your whole family could tell your doctor to be like, look out for this on the blood work that you get every year in the physical. Mm, mm, that, yeah, that actually makes sense. I, I feel like that's how it should be is that, once you figure out that this thing is messed up or this gene is present, then, hey, you better be on the lookout for it, right? Yeah, it, it's becoming a lot more, you know, normalized, but so many older doctors, and this is such new technology in, say, the last two decades, that they don't want to give their patients more blood work or more forms to sign, more things to worry about. But in the long run, it's going to save tons of lives. Yeah, man, that's that's awesome. So you got diagnosed and after you were diagnosed, do you have any, do you wish you lived your pre-cancer life any differently? Yes. Uh, I wish I wouldn't have took so many things for granted. Like I would wake up and I'd let one little thing kind of ruin a day or two 
where I w- wouldn't enjoy the moments that I look back on and be like, man, that, that was really cool. Like, or just waking up and not being in pain or not having the anxiety of something hanging over my head to just kind of enjoy that freedom of living. I didn't yeah. take that for full what I should have. And I mean, it's hard because, you know, people's lives are complicated and everything. So I don't, you don't really notice it until something like this happens. You look back and you're like, yeah, everything was pretty good back then. Holy shit. The power of perspective, man. Something like that just switches everything, right? Yes, definitely. Damn. So did you change kind of your approach to life after you got diagnosed? It, it took me a few years before I finally was uh, healthy enough mentally because I got diagnosed and went through surgery, chemo, and then the cancer came back. And I went through a really, you know, two to three year dark period where it, it was a struggle to even fight to live. But then through therapy and other help, it's changed my perspective totally. And now I embrace each day as a chance to, you know, help spread my message and help people in the cancer community, mental health, and different aspects try to live a better life by showing them the struggles that I've been through. Yeah. And by the way, your blog is fantastic. I've read almost the entire thing. It is absolutely fantastic. Do not ever stop doing what you're doing. Let's go. No, that was, that was the first thing the therapist was like, you've got to find some outlet to get the things in your mind out. That that's actually great advice. And this is why, I love talking to you and if I could, I would sit down and talk to cancer patients and terminally ill cancer patients all day. I feel like very, very few people can look death in the eye and then turn around and look at a person like you're looking at me right now. Mm -hmm. And I just think you have such valuable perspective. I wish that you would write every single day because I would read it every single day. Well, I'm, I'm definitely trying to write more. And through the winter is where I definitely write a lot more just because, you know, dark at five o'clock and too cold to go outside. So it, it comes yeah. out a lot more during the winter time. Yeah. So so let's dive back into the to the diagnosis. OK. So I've always wondered. How do these things go? Like, are you sitting um, in a doctor's office, does a doctor come in and tell you? Do they mail you something? Do they text uh, you? Doctor scared? It's like, oh, this guy may attack me. No, mine might be a little different because, like I said, I ignored my symptoms for so long. Like before I went to get the CT scan, which showed the mass, I could pull the shirt against my stomach and you could see my stomach throb where it ended up the tumor was right. at. But I get to the hospital, I do the CT scan, and then they're like, oh, you can go home. So in my mind, I'm like, you know, okay, it's not that bad. Before I get to my car, my doctor calls and was like, you need to come back to the office and can you bring somebody with you? Oh, shit. So automatically then I'm like, all right, it's bad news. And then I go there. My mom leaves. She's a assistant teacher. She leaves school, comes with me. And he just, he walks in. And he pretty much reads down what they found on the scans. And at that point, he couldn't say definitively it was cancer because you got to have a you got to have a biopsy to where they send off to test for cancer cells. All he could say is there's a mass in your colon that looks like it's most likely cancerous. But as I said before, as soon as he said that, I told my mom, I was like, it is cancer 100 percent. 
but then they scheduled a colonoscopy where they went in there, looked, and took a biopsy. And I got that information to where it was 100% cancer at my surgeon's office the next day. But uh, the doctors, it's different for every doctor. Like my, uh, you know, family doctor, he's known me for years. So he was, you know, more emotional than my surgeon. And in my instance, I like the surgeon better because I, I, I don't like to see the emotions from the people that are going to be, you know, cutting into me. Yeah. So what was that time like between, so you get the test results to say, hey, you got a mass, we don't know what it is, and then getting the final um, cancer diagnosis. It, it was a long time because mine was actually stretched over the weekend because I got the uh, CT scan and told there was a mass in there on Friday, September 4th of 2015, which was Labor Day weekend. So I couldn't have my colonoscopy till that Tuesday when everything opened back up after Labor Day. So there was that whole weekend that I just, everything was going through my mind constantly. And I, I was like, should I tell everybody that I have this mass that I know is cancer or should I wait till the colonoscopy? But finally, I just went ahead and told everybody what was in my mind because they were getting ready to see me have to drink the colonoscopy prep, which is horrible. Well, it was horrible then. I'm used to it now, but... Oh, shit. What, how'd your family react? A, a lot of mixed emotions. You know, they, they were all shocked. And then some of them were thankful because they knew how bad I was struggling on that last month before I finally went to the doctor. And then they just, they rallied around me and, you know, told me they were going to be there and they helped me through there. And they've been instrumental in my whole journey since that day. Yeah. So, okay. So you've been diagnosed, um, told your family, uh, what happens next? Do the doctor say, is it, Hey, you're diagnosed and this is what we're going to do about it. Yeah. I got the colonoscopy and that next day I go meet the surgeon for the first time. And he's like, it is cancer. We need to get it out because you're the tumor is blocking about 90% of your colon. Holy shit. So there was only a, that's why I was having such a trouble using the bathroom because there was only a very small way for it to move through my colon. So from that day, it was about five days till I was in surgery. And that was just enough time for him to get ready for me to, you know, do all the insurance stuff with the government and everything. And then he's like, all right, this is the option that we got to do right now. And we'll discuss treatment after we remove the tumor because it's, there's so much blockage. So it was surgery and what was only supposed to be a, you know, a five day hospital stay, my body turned out one to be complicated and I was in there 16 days, but that's where we decided about the treatment too, afterwards going to chemo and everything after the surgery. What do you mean your body was complicated? It it didn't react well to the surgery? Well, we did the surgery. He had to take out 80% of my colon and about 34 inches of my small intestine and when they reattached there, I was doing okay for a few days, but my stomach wasn't wanting to wake up because they paralyzed everything in there to cut and reattach. And then my body started producing so much stomach acid. It was just filling my stomach cavity. So I had to be rushed back in for emergency surgery to make sure there was no leaks and what was going on. So a five-day stay turned into 16 days with the stretch in the ICU. and Just the body wanted to cause problems. Yo, here's a random question. <laughs> do they? 
I'm so sorry. Oh. Do they do they let you see the colon that they took out? No, not okay. at all. They uh, they threw that away, I guess, in the biological thing. But I know they did cut up my tumor and send it all over the world to cancer research areas because I had to sign a paper that said it's okay to do that. Like those research areas will never know my name. They yeah. just I'm some big long letter of parts of tumors that they do and that's how they develop drugs and study what the different mutations and everything is with the tumor. Oh, okay. Well, well that's pretty awesome. I didn't know that that yeah. was even an option. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't either until it was about a day later. They're like, Oh, can you sign this paper and it'll, you know, send your, they cut up your tumor and put it on the little, uh, biology slides and it'll go all over the world to cancer centers. Oh, that's awesome. So you've had your surgery. They've taken out the mass. Um, so whenever a tumor is removed, the tumor is cancer, is a person cancer free? That it all depends on your staging. Cause it could be in your lip nodes. It could be different parts of your body. I was diagnosed at first as stage two. It had grown through my colon, but it hadn't spread to my lymph nodes or any other part of my body. So I was technically diagnosed as cancer free, but I needed treatment like chemo to make sure there was no other cells floating around that can't be picked up. Okay. So you got the surgery, they taken out the mass. Now I'm assuming you have to start chemo. Yeah. A recovery period after surgery before they want me to start chemo. So that was about a month long. And then I started chemo in the middle of November in 2015. Okay. So 2015 you start chemo. What exactly happens during a session of chemo all right it was uh, you would walk in they access you know i got a port put in where the medicine will go into my chest through a port instead of an iv because chemo is so hard on your veins then mm -hmm. it's just easier to you know put a needle on this and it goes in so much quicker so they access that and then with the type of chemo i was on you had to get anti-nausea medicine first a dose of steroids and then they started doing in the four bags of different chemo combinations. So I was there for about eight hours. Okay. So a couple of things, the, the port, could, could you explain the port? Yeah, the port, it's a device that has like a rubber top to it. And you know, anytime you're at the hospital, you get stuck with an IV and that's how you get fluids. The port is just a way for medicine and fluids and everything to go much quicker. And the vein goes through my neck into your main vein to where it spreads through your body a lot quicker. And for cancer patients, chemo is such a poisonous drug that your small veins in your arms, it would like destroy those, like make them almost where you can't get a needle into it just because there's so much and so much poison going through it. So they use the bigger veins and it's oh. just somewhere to get, it's easier than getting access, especially if you have bad veins and dehydrated. So, so it's like an IV, but it's access to like the really juicy veins. Yeah. Almost, like if I pull my shirt down, it almost looks like a bottle cap and mine's like right here and they just kind of poke the needle in there and then they hook it up and it just goes straight in. And it's almost instantaneously. Like if they flush it with the saline or there, it automatically, I could taste that in my mouth. Holy shit. What does it taste yeah. like? Salt. <laughs> yeah it's just That's like crazy. the saline salt man that is so crazy okay so chemo is 
essentially like a drip of a cocktail of some crazy shit, right? Yeah. And you said for eight hours, you sit there and just take this drip. Yep. Holy fuck. Yeah, it was, it was a whole new experience. Like people could tell you about it and doctors would tell me and you would research what it's like or read it. And I tell people, it's like, you could do that, but it's something that you can't be prepared for until you sit down in that chair and you get it for the first time. And it's, it's like a whole new horrible world. What's it like? Uh, the first thing for me is it just, it automatically zapped me of almost any energy. I was sitting there and about an hour into the hardcore chemo drugs, I felt sick. I was dehydrated and it just like my stomach, the taste in the back of my throat had changed and it just kept that pretty much for the next like four days until the side effects kind of waned off. So there's so there's side effects. So even after yeah. the eight hour treatment, oh, yeah. shitty. For a lot of people, the treatment like that eight hours or so is okay because of the steroids that they give you kind of mask all the symptoms. Your body's so jacked up on the steroids that they give you to help your body your cells accept the drugs. So that usually takes about twelve hours to wear off, and then all of a sudden it hit me. And the side effects, you know, it's strength fatigue, nausea, diarrhea, constipation. I never knew you could be have diarrhea and constipation in back to back days while I was on chemo. <laughs> like it, it, it changed an instant, and it was, it, it, I was like, "Yep." Now I see why they put both of those words up there. <laughs> That's such a good point. Hey, if I if I read a drug, I mean, chemo is different, but like if a doctor gave me a drug and it said constipation and diarrhea as a Side effects. I'll say, man, Doc, I don't, I don't know about this drug, yeah. but I, I believe it now that she's told me. Yeah, it it, it threw me for a loop because, and then for me, one of my bad side effects is mouth sores. Like I had a bad, like my family genes probably something else is wrong with them because I've dealt with fever blisters and mouth sores like my whole life, and chemo just exponentially made that worse. Yeah, that's crazy. So. Do you know like what it's doing to the body that is so harsh? Uh, yeah, chemo it it pretty much just kills a lot of cell. Like it kills cells. That's why certain chemos will kill different cells. That's why people lose their hair on certain chemos, and it does other things to the body. But it just goes in there and it kills everything. There's it's not targeted, and it just kills everything that that drug is designed to or supposed to sometimes it don't work but that's what it's made to do just go in there and wipe everything out oh shit so it doesn't care it just shoots everything even the good stuff yeah in that targeted area any similar cells it's just it's designed to wipe them all out okay so you started chemo treatment how long did that last I was, uh, at first it was 12 treatments every two weeks. So I was on it from middle of November to the end of April. Okay. That's the normal, like, uh, basic colon cancer drug. It is a combo drug called Folfox and it's up to 12 rounds over six months. Okay. So you, you lived through that, uh, you, you survived the chemo, the constipation and diarrhea yeah. at, the same, at the same damn time. Um, and what happens next? Do they release you and say, Hey, JJ, you're good to go, man. Cancer. No, no, they, uh, 
once you're done with that, usually you'll have, uh, you have scans all throughout treatment. Like mine were every two months. And then I get a CT scan and a colonoscopy within weeks of ending that 12th chemo round. And for me, my CT scan, it came back clear at that time in the colonoscopy. Everything was good in my colon. So they were like, all right, we will see you back in a couple months. And from then on, you'll get every three months scans. Because that's the normal amount for the first two years. If you stay no can or NED is what it's called. No evidence of disease. You get scans every three months. The next year go to every six months and then once a year until year five. And if you still don't have any evidence of disease, that's when they clinically tell you you're cancer free. And what was your mindset after the chemo where you felt like, Hey, you beat it. You went back to your normal life. Uh, Pretty much, I was like, okay, got that done, got the scan back. They're like, you're good, your colonoscopy is clean. I went on a vacation to visit a friend in Florida, and then I was like, okay, I'm going to start work back and use this different mindset or outlook on life and, you know, live the way I want to and the way I thought about. I was laying in bed all those days during chemo and in the hospital. So I jumped right back in two feet, and off I went for six weeks. And, and what, what was that like? You, you said you kind of approached life different. It, what changed? It was different. Like, I just wanted to because I had so many regrets and so many things I wanted to do different when I was laying there. Couldn't barely have enough energy to make it to the bathroom or was sitting in the hospital in the middle of the night. And I was just like, all right, when I get done, when I beat this, I want to do this different. I don't want to take these small things for granted because I realized, like, yeah, everybody loves the big, you know, the big trip here, the big event there. But I was like, when you're, when I was laying there, I realized that those small things, those are what I remember the most and yeah. just wanted to enjoy and, you know, treat those with the respect that I know they deserve now after this experience. So just, so just essentially everyday life, just being thankful for the small things like family, yeah. friends, family, friends, those, you know, those unexpected events, like it could be hanging out with a, couple friends watching a football game and you could remember that 10 years later but before i've been like oh you know it, it was a good day but that's it so now i was like want to totally enjoy that don't kind of just overlook little things like that yeah do you think your your family or friends would describe your personality differently after um the chemo was done and all that yeah i think they would uh a little bit at that time a little bit they were more thoughtful and more you know noticeable what's going around in the time instead of just always looking for that next big adventure next big thing to do kind of yeah. more at peace and accepting things as they come that's so interesting man that's so interesting that you had this life-changing experience mid-life you came out of it and you live to tell about it. So what, what happened next? So you were, uh, you were going for these checkups to check to see if the cancer came back. What, what happened next? Well, I didn't even make it to that first three month checkup. I was, a uh, laying in bed one night and I felt that same throbbing in my abdomen. It was a uh, middle of May. So it was six weeks after I'd finished chemo. And this time I was at the doctor's, my surgeon's office, before he even got there that morning, I was waiting on the bench to go in when he pulled in. And then it just kind of started all over. We went and got scans, got blood work, tests. 
realized that within those six weeks, a tumor had grown in a different area. It wasn't in my colon. It had moved to my abdominal wall now, and it spread through to my lymph nodes. So I metastasized and spread throughout my body. And that's when, you know, it was like, all right, we got to send you back down to Duke this time to meet the oncologist there because this is more complicated now. What did you feel like whenever you heard that news? I was totally defeated. And at this point, I still had a little bit of hope. I was like, okay, in my mind, cancer back. It's in a different area, so probably no surgery, but six more months of hardcore, like even worse chemo was what I thought in my mind at that point. But it was also, at this point, it was making my daily life a lot harder because the cancer where it was growing, it was making my back hurt where I couldn't like sit in a chair for long. I couldn't lay in bed long. So it was already at the time changing my daily life. And I was just like, all right, well, get me down to Duke. Tell me what the treatment is. And hopefully this time the chemo will work and be done for good. Yeah. So, so you, you said you were completely devastated. Did you ever feel yeah. like, like you just, maybe you just drew a bad hand in life or man, what the fuck? Not at this point. That comes a little bit later where I was okay. just like totally, you know, done and had given up and stuff. But at this point I was still holding on to that last hope. Be like, all right, I could do six more months. I could do, you know, six, eight more months of this and hopefully be good. But I was, I was still devastated at this point because I was like, I did not want to do six more months of chemo. Dude. Yeah, I bet. So what, so what happened after, after that? So what, so they, what they told you was that, Hey, it came back and it's migrated to these other things and that you're going to have to do chemo. Is that it? Well, that's what my doctor in uh, Asheville said. But then he was like, all right, you got to go down to visit the Duke Cancer Center because, you know, they're world-class oncologists that specialize in colorectal cancer. And they're going to be looking at the scans, looking at your blood work and telling you what's next. Just okay. because, you know, they see that's all they work on. My oncologist in Asheville, he's a general oncologist. But they sent me down there and they're like, all right, they're going to be head of your treatment program now i still get it done in Asheville, so i don't have the five hour drive every few weeks but they're mm -hmm. calling the shots okay so they sent you to the specialist what what yeah. did they say at, at Duke? and i walked in and he i could tell it was going to be bad and he was like all right the cancer was made up different now when it came back and grew it's a, a different mutations is essentially a non-solid tumor so that means they can't take it out because it was, they would cut in there and try to remove it. And it would just kind of disseminate through the abdominal wall and through my body, through the like lymphatic system. And then they were also like, it's in five of your lymph nodes in your chest, your abdomen in different areas of your body. So this is basically considered incurable at that point. You know, they can't remove it. They can't cut it out. It's chemo resistant already because the last chemo didn't kill it. So they're like, the next step is we're going to try you on these different chemo cocktails that are FDA approved because we got to try those first and hopefully they will shrink it and stop it growing and we'll move on from there. But they were pretty much like, this is your life. And the doctor there, he was like, you got a 25% chance to be alive in five years. Holy fuck. Yeah. And I, at that point I was completely, I did like, I was just numb the whole next few days i barely remember doing anything other than ride back from duke 
I don't even know what to say, man. That's fucking crazy, dude. Holy shit. So you've got the diagnosis. They're like, hey, this thing is badass. And damn, before your three-month checkup, too. Before yeah, was, that's, why, that's when they knew it was bad because it had grown so quick from the last CT scan to when I started feeling the pain. It was, you know, a month. And it had grown to where I could feel it inside my abdominal wall, and it was causing me issues. So they're like, it is fast growing now because my other tumor was slow growing, but this is one. There's this is fast growing. It's you know growing at an exponential rate. We got to start doing something. And and you said it migrated to your stomach. It's, it's my abdominal wall. There's a cavity in your abdominal lining. I can't pronounce the medical name of it because they seem to, you know, everything's 15, 20 letters long. But <laughs> it's essentially like right in the middle of my abdominal wall, and it's just in that little lining of my abdominal wall. And so then they say, okay, we're going to give you the best treatment possible. If they, they said it was not curable. Yeah, then- because I guess, I don't know. I kind of, everything's a little blurry, but they said they can't cut it out. They can't do surgery. And since it was resistant to the other chemo and stuff, they classified it as incurable. So they were hoping, you know, the chemos would just stop it from growing Mm. and then we would move on. And, but that's why they were like, you're going to be on treatment the rest of your life. What, um, what'd you feel like whenever you heard that? I was, I didn't really know what to feel because at one point I was like, okay, I'm going to fight this. But then the other point, they were like, you have 25% chance to be alive in five years. And at the way I was feeling them with the pain and knowing what was going on, I'm like, oh, all I wanted to do was see 30. I was 28 at the time. And I was like, if I could see 30, I, you know, I wouldn't be happy. But that was my goal. That That's where I was at that point. Yeah. So what was it more of like an attitude of digging your heels? I'm going to fight. Was it attitude of I'm defeated? Was attitude of I'm angry? Why me? Very angry. Very many questions of why me? What did I do to deserve this? Is this punishment for something I did in my life? And then I was angry at the world. I I took it out on probably everybody for that next few weeks. People couldn't talk to me. I was just in my own head the whole time. But then as the closer, the day came closer to me starting chemo, I was like, okay, I'm going to fight this as long as I can. Yeah. In, in that time, did you think about your own death? Yeah, it's, it, it was, it was forefront of my mind pretty much every single day because I would feel the pain. I would feel, you know, my body changing and just, I wasn't able to do what I was able to do a couple of weeks ago, not much less a few years ago. So it's like, as I could feel my body deteriorating and changing, death was on my mind all the time. And, and what were your thoughts on that? I mean, how'd you feel? I wasn't ready for it. At that point, I was scared to death of it. I didn't know how, I, how to even begin to accept it. Because in my mind, you know, I was like, I'm going to live till I'm 70. You know, let even less than a year ago, I was still thinking I've got a full life ahead. I, you know, wanted to get married, wanted to have kids, wanted to do all that stuff. And now completely changed my outlook on everything in life. Fuck, man. Shit. 
so was it a thing where you said hey i want to you know i don't know leave behind a legacy or do i want to just go crazy do some drugs in mexico and bank pickers or i thought about both of them but in the end it was kind of just like I, I want to you know i don't want, wouldn't even say a legacy i just wanted to fight as hard as i can because to me the people that loved me the people that were instrumental in my life they deserved for me to fight that long because they've done so much to help me and they were still there every step of the way. So at that point I was like, I got to do this for them. And in the back of my mind at that point, I was still like, who knows what drugs will be developed in the future. Mm. That's a good point. How crazy that, uh, that the first thing you would think about is your family and friends. It's like, I have to fight them. It's crazy. Yeah, that, that, that kept me going for all through the, at that period. Holy shit. So, <laughs> you, know, you know, like guys, like we, I think that maybe through like years of evolution or whatever, I think we're kind of bred and wired to be savages. And I hear a lot of guys like this, it's like, Oh yeah, you know, I'm I'm fucked up or something like that, or maybe I'm an addict or I'm in a really bad place. I gotta do it for my wife. I gotta do it for my kids. I gotta do it for my mom. It's like I think as guys, man, as men, a lot of us really don't give a shit about ourselves like we should, man. Yeah, that's that's definitely been a thing I've worked on and I'm still working on it to this day. But in my mind, you know, it's always for everybody else. Cause I, I've dealt with, you know self-confidence and self, you know, esteem issues, even though people that know me would never be able to notice that from my social media or anything, but those questions are always in my head. So when I used to get put with these obstacles, I'm like, I got to do it for them. I got to do it for that. Don't care about me, but I care about the other people. And that was my mindset at that time. Would you you say that you're a confident person? I've got a lot more confident in aspects of my life as my journey over the last seven years have went through, but there's still aspects of my life that I'm not very confident in. I hide it well, but me personally, like when I'm laying in bed at night, I know those insecurities and self-confidence issues of parts of my life, they come up and they rear their head, especially, you know, those alone times at night. Yeah. Oh yeah. That that's the worst times you think about. Yeah. In fact, probably tonight, you know, I don't know about you, I'll be thinking, man, why did I say that in that podcast? What the <laughs> fuck was I thinking? <laughs> don't ever think that. It's it's crazy, man. But you know what happens. You know what happens. Um so so essentially you got a terminal cancer diagnosis. It was spreading very fast, and it sounds like your body was losing the fight against cancer. What what did that feel like physically to lose to be losing the fight? It was it was horrible mentally, physically. It was just every few weeks I could say that I could tell that I couldn't do what I could even a few weeks ago. Like I would try to walk, and as the weeks went on, it went from two laps around the track to a lap and a half, and then I had to go right back to the car to a lap. And as as like I started doing different chemo treatments, and they all ended up failing and not working. So around fall of that year, my day consisted of waking up, taking my pain pills, 
laying on the heat pad and switching between the heat pad and a little portable massage chair for my back because I was in such pain. I would lay in the bed and like kind of curl my knees up to my chest to kind of decompress my back. And that was my life going through trying to get a little bit of relief in between the six hours where I could take the next dose of pain medication. What was the light at the end of the tunnel at that point? At that point, there was no, that was the start of the period of like the dark time. Like I did not see a light at that point. It was almost like, okay, if this is going to be my life, I'm struggling to find a reason to keep going through this pain every day, to keep going through all the struggles and dealing with this 24 seven. Yeah. I don't understand how or why you would keep going. Yeah. At that point, there was a time is almost exactly about a week ago or six years ago, a week ago is when I got the news that the last approved chemo cocktail had failed and they were waiting to try to get me into a clinical trial. And I was like, okay, if they do not, if they say I'm not approved for this clinical trial, I'm just telling them I'm done and I'm going into hospice. Cause uh, like I couldn't, I, there wasn't a, anything that had me to fight for. And I was just going to tell everybody that that's my choice. I was like, you see what I go through every day, but luckily I got into the clinical trial. Holy shit. So you were very, very close to just kind of accepting yeah. your own fate. Yeah. I mean, when they, when I was filling out the tons of paperwork that you got to, to be approved for a clinical trial, my doctors were like, you're a little different than normal because this is your last chance. So like you're going to get in, if you get in this clinical trial, it's either going to work or you're going into hospice and you're going to be dead in, you know, a couple months to a year because of the cancer, there's no other options left. Nothing that we can get you into if this fails. So that was in my mindset. And that was the, reality of my life they're like okay this is the last home run chance what what was your family like at this time were they openly sad or were they supportive i could tell they were definitely sad scared worried but they they tried to hide it from me and at that point i was in such pain and so struggling so much that i don't remember too much of what was going on because i didn't go anywhere i would just lay in bed the whole time but I know they were they were worried and they were scared and you know they were getting ready for what they thought could possibly come in me not being here. Fuck man, that had to be real hard on them too. I mean, not to yeah, uh, not, not to minimize what you were going through. Oh no, that's I tell people all the time. I don't know how my mom and my stepdad, my dad, grandparents, all them dealt with that the whole time. I was like, I've, I've seen them break down and cry a few times in the hospital and different times. And I was like the strength that they showed and just to kept, keep showing up and keep taking me to doctor appointments and everything. Damn. Could you, could you imagine what it's like for a mother to watch her child sit there and slowly get eaten by cancer? No, nah, not, not at all. Like it, it blows my mind and, and at the same time with my mom, she was dealing with that with me. And then I have two brothers, a sister who had kids at the time too. And she was still going and doing the whole, being the mom and grandma of all them. And so I tell you, my mom's the strongest and best person I've ever known. 
Bro, women are tough. <laughs> yeah, they, I don't they, understand. They, they overshadow us, man, in every way possible. Every fucking way. Every way. I think as men, uh, we have this macho thing where we think, oh, I can pick up this heavy rock and she can't. Yeah. So therefore, I was like. Yeah, it's, there's nothing like the, the women that my grandma, my mom, both of my grandparents are, and my mom, and even like the women I know in the, as nurses and stuff, they, they show more strength than I could ever imagine. Yeah, same here, man. Some of the strongest moments I've ever observed is has been from women. I don't they're just they're different, man. They're just different. Yep. I don't I don't understand. So uh so your last dying hope as you kind of live on pain meds, stay on a heating pad, just in the fetal position, your last dying hope was to maybe get into a clinical trial. Yep. Uh what what happened? Were you able to get in? Uh there, it was November 10th of 2016. I, I remember the date too, because it's like two days after the presidential election of 2016 and stuff. I make my mom and stepdad rush me to the hospital because the pain is so bad. Like I, I couldn't stand it. I was crying. And when, when people see me cry because of pain, they know it's really bad. So they rushed me to the hospital. And it turns out at that point, the cancer had grown around the end of my stomach. So uh, anything I ate at that point was just sitting in my stomach until I threw it up. So nothing could go through my stomach into my intestines. And that was causing all the pain. So ended up what was from November 10th to December 20 or 5th, I was in the hospital for 25 days. And they thought I would never leave because at that point they didn't know I was going to get into the clinical trial and they didn't know how to get me food and nutrients so over the next 25 days, I got into the trial, got my first treatment later on in the hospital stay, but they tried and failed multiple things to get me food and nutrients and hydration. Yeah, but, so uh, it, it sounds like they, they thought this was the end for you. Yeah, there was the doctors, nurses, of people in my family, and even me too. I was like, okay, I will never leave the hospital again. Holy shit. So how, how'd you get the news that you were accepted in the clinical trial? I was actually asleep and the doctor came in, my oncologist, cause he would come around and visit me once a day or once every other day, depending on his schedule. And he came in there and I think my mom was in there and he said that you're approved for the clinical trial and they were going to be able to ship the drug up to Asheville from Duke. So you don't have to drive down there to get it. Cause I was in the hospital at that point, but they were like, even if you get out, you'll still be able to get it up here. And they were like, as soon as he improves just a little bit, we'll be able to give it to him. And then that's when my surgeon and a different surgeon kind of came together and came up with this plan of how to get me nutrients and kind of fix the issues I had with nothing going through my stomach. Hmm. So what, what, what happened next? How, how did they get you nutrients? And then they, what's the drug like? They, they put something in my stomach called a GJ tube, which is a drainage tube. They used it as drainage tubes for me that went in my stomach and my small intestine that drained all the stomach acid and anything I put in my mouth, like any water or anything, it would go instantly into those drains. So nothing went through my stomach. 
and they started feeding me on this thing called TPN, total something nutrients, where they would take my blood and specifically to my blood work, they would give me every vitamin, mineral, and nutrient I needed to live. But nothing would go through my stomach. It went straight into my veins. Mm. So, and I actually ended up being on that for 450 days. There were there was 14 months where I didn't eat a single bite of food. Nothing digested through my stomach. Yeah. What the, so you were just hooked up to an IV the whole time, no food. It was a four, the infusions would go 14 hours a day. So, at when I left the hospital at night, I would get hooked up about 3:30. And I would get unhooked at about 5.30 or 6. And it's just, it's a pump that, at first it went into my arm and then it went into my port. And it's just a bag of liquid. And sometimes they would put, you know, lipids in there for fats. And it was made specifically for me. Takes 14 hours and I was never hungry, never had a stomach ache. But it was so, it it changed my life. It was such a hard time because you miss eating so bad. Like just the mental part of eating, the chewing, the taste, the the endorphins and stuff you get of eating something that's good. So you you went fourteen months without eating. Yep. Holy shit! This is and, crazy. And that, that was like the darkest. The, the beginning of that was the darkest time. Like I'd started the clinical trial drugs. I still didn't know if it was working. And then as the first couple months of not eating and laying in bed, I was laying in bed about 22 hours a day. And that was at the dark, the darkest points that I had where I was like, I do not want to live in this life. If something, you know, it was just, I seen no way out. I didn't know if I'd ever be able to eat again. Didn't know if the drug was working. And it was just, it was a very dark and tough time. So you said for 14 months? Yeah. Yeah, so for 14 months, you, the doctors, used this IV to get you a little bit better. Yep. And they they also administered this clinical trial drug at the same time? Yeah, and about halfway through the year at one of my scans, they noticed that it was shrinking a little bit. Holy but, shit. like, very little. Like, it shrank a little bit, but then the clinical trial for me, it's a drug that won't cure me. It just keeps it from spreading. It keeps the cancer from growing and going crazy throughout my body. So once they seen that was happening over six months, they were like, okay, this is going to work for a certain amount of time. We, we don't know how long it'll work, but hopefully in a couple of months, we'll be able to go back in there and rearrange your whole insides to let you be able to eat again. Okay. So if, if I understand the clinical trial aspect is a clinical trial drug is maybe a drug company or somebody is trying to treat or cure or, yeah. or help cancer patients and maybe the drug isn't fda approved it's like hey we can't just we, we're not sure if it's going to work essentially yeah and then people like you can benefit because you don't have anything else to help yeah uh there's different stages of clinical trial mine was a stage two so they knew there was it worked for certain aspects of cancer but they didn't know the correct dosage and they didn't know the side effects that would, would cause mm. so i was on there and you know for the first year or two i had to meet with the drug company they would come and interview me and ask me a million questions about every single side effect i or anything that was wrong with my body at all. But the drug that I, it was a little different than chemo. It was more of a immunotherapy to 
where it unlocked something in our immune system called the T cells that was able to attack the cancer that was growing. Whoa, that sounds super yeah, fancy. Very complicated, very, very <laughs> high tech stuff. That That is the most layman terms that I could put it that I understand. Yeah. So it, it just, it, it turned on them T cells after the cancer, yeah. like some dogs. <laughs> yeah, There's a lot more complicated and longer words that describe what it actually does, but that that's the way they described it to me at one point. So, yeah. So it was, it, you were giving it via IV, right? Yeah. And I went from every two weeks to every three weeks. Cause this drug, you have to be, you only can get it every 21 days. Okay. So every 21 days, uh, would go and get the IV of it. And this whole time you're in a hospital, in a hospital bed for 22 hours, you said? Well, at that, I was only in the hospital for 25 days. And then I got to go home because they would ship the food to me through this uh, home health service. Nice. But I was laid in bed and I had the drainage tubes. I had a pain pump that was in my port. That was a little fanny pack kind of thing of pain medicine. And then there was a huge, it almost looked like a book bag that would lay beside my bed that had the pump and the huge bag of food every night that would get pumped into me. Oh, so I would nice. just, I pretty much didn't want to walk around because I had these two bags that were full of like green and brown liquid of stomach acid and everything else. So I, I thought people were just staring at me the whole time, anytime I would walk around with them. Hmm. But then I also had the other bag, like the pain medicine bag. And if I went anywhere in the evening, I had a huge bag of food or my food. Those. Yeah. Yeah. So this whole time and were you getting better or were you feeling better? I wasn't feeling much better because the TPN, while it kept me alive and it does that, it has its own side effects, bone pain, joint pain, you know, just a bunch of other things that happen because of it is it's basically, you know, medicine going in to keep you alive. But I knew that the cancer wasn't growing the pains and stuff that I was had before that was getting slightly better. So that was at that about the middle of that year is where my mindset kind of started getting a little bit better. Nice. I bet. Yeah. I bet you said that was a super dark time to just sit there and suffer all day, yeah. every day suffer. And it's like, I couldn't escape it cause I, I couldn't drive cause I had that 24 hour pain pump on me. So there was, you know, you can't drive when you're on pain medicine. I was on pain medicine 24 seven. So I couldn't do anything except lay there. And it was like, I was constantly inside my own head all day, all night. You, and you couldn't eat, right. And you couldn't just eat. Guessing like you couldn't drink whiskey or beer. No, not at all. I mean, I guess I could have, but it wouldn't do no different. Cause as soon as it went down my throat, it would go out into the bags. So it would never get digested. Did you learn anything about yourself during those dark times? I learned that I had a lot more mental strength and just, I was a lot more adept to face these obstacles than I thought I was because yeah. people had always told me you're strong. You can do this. You, you're a good person. You're this, but it took that going through those dark stages and being at the very bottom where I didn't want to live at one point. And then starting to get better where I realized of who I actually was as a person and what I could endure and what I could, you know, be. Yeah. Those points where you maybe didn't want to live. How do you view that person now that you were back then? 
I, I understand him, but also I know he was, he had a lot of mental health issues. I mean, I still have a lot of mental health issues. I don't think those ever leave. You just, you go through therapy and you kind of learn to control them or get a little bit better through there. But at that time, I was still that guy who thought therapy made you weak, didn't want to. I was a man. I, I didn't want to ask for help. So I, I think he was stubborn and selfish in that regard. And it took me being there and being scared to death of my thoughts of wanting to, you know, kill myself. That made me into who I am. I can see that guy. Yeah. Do you believe in some type of afterlife? Yeah. I, I, I was raised in a, you know, Christian Baptist household and I, I, I consider myself a Christian. I'm not as big into it. And as you know, all out there as I used to be, but I think there is a God out there. Maybe I just, I don't like what some Christian Christian and Christianity has turned into through public and social media and stuff, but mm. I believe in a higher power and that it's all, you know, there's all a purpose to everything. Yeah. Were, were you thinking about that a lot while going through these dark times? A little bit, but I was in such a dark place that all I could think about was like the burden that I was, the, the no hope, the darkness. I was just, I couldn't get out of my own head long enough to think of anything bigger than what was right there in front of me that I was experiencing right in that moment. What made you feel like you were a burden? Just, I couldn't drive. I couldn't take care of myself. I had to have people come and administer the TPN, take me to every appointment and then just as we were talking earlier, the burden of me having cancer, the mental and emotional toll that I took on my family and my friends. And I know now looking back that I wasn't a burden. I mean, I still have those thoughts today about certain aspects of my life that I know when I'm down and struggling in my mental health, those come up. But at that point, it was so bad that I couldn't do anything. Nobody could tell me anything to make me believe any different. Yeah. That's incredible. So what what was the final result of the clinical trial drug? Did it end up working? Uh, I'm actually still on it. I'm a very weird case. Most people are only on it two years, and it either cures them or it don't work at all. Mine works just good enough to keep the cancer from spreading. So I'm one of the very, very few that have been on it a long time. But it's actually an FDA-approved drug now for multiple cancers. And – uh yeah, it's kept my cancer in check. Like, it's still active. My cancer will move a little bit. It'll grow some, shrink some. I've had to have extra drugs added to it at times, but it's kept me alive so far and it allowed me to improve my health to where I am today. Yeah. So are you still, like, technically terminal? What are your chances to live five years? Uh, I don't – I told them I never wanted to hear – odds anymore like mm -hmm. during the middle of that where in my darkest spot like i tell people all the time and they look at me funny like star wars saved my life because i was i was always a nerd but i never really mm -hmm. liked star wars and one night it was snowing and they the cable got knocked out but my uncle had recorded the six star wars movies on tnn and there was nothing else to watch so i watched those and at that point was the first time in about four months where I've left my own head and kind of went to that world where I didn't 
worry about cancer for a couple hours. And after that, I was hooked. All the movies, TV shows, books, that gave me an escape enough to get through that day and allow me to mentally kind of heal myself enough to go and ask for help at the therapist. So right now, you don't know if your chances to be alive in a year, five years, 10? Uh, right now, they pretty much, the cancer is what they call stable. It grows some, shrinks some. So I live pretty much three months at a time. And that's when I get the next scan. Because at some point, the drug's going to fail. Our bodies are crazy smart. And they will realize what this drug's doing and be like, eh, it's not 100% natural. So they'll correct it. And then hopefully by that time, there's another drug on the market or another clinical trial that does similar things. And I will just jump into that one. So I, I know I get scans and I get treatment every three weeks and the cancer still alive and active, but it's not growing uncontrollable. Damn, man. How, how do you approach life knowing that like, you don't know what the fuck's going to happen? Yeah, it took me a long time to just kind of, you know, accept that this is my life. And I get my next scan actually uh, two days before December 23rd is when I get my next scan. So as that gets closer, I'll start getting, it, we call it scanxiety, anxiety about the scans and worries. And, you know, all those emotions will come through me weeks leading up to it. But I'm kind of at a point right now, like, you know, we said before I was terrified of death there, but now I'm at a place in my life and my mental health where I know it will come at some point. And if it is in a couple of weeks, I know I will still continue to fight and live the life the way I have. And that kind of brings me a, at peace enough in the moment. JJ, dude, it almost bothers me how well you cope with this this is like this is devastating me personally to hear this what what superpower have you tapped into man i think it's just everything i went through for those years because i mean from the time i got re-diagnosed in early 26 or mid 2016 until probably i was in early 2018 so i started eating again but my mental health was still not good i was still in my own self. I didn't ask for help other than my therapy. I didn't do any advocacy work, didn't talk to anybody about it. Not until about 2020s when I'd been two years of talking to a therapist, two times a month, three times a month. And like looking into myself more that I would realized, you know, and kind of grown into what I am now. So I think when people see me today, they're like, you, you handle this well, you're you know, outlook, your look on life is totally, you know, hard to believe. It's because they didn't see me those years where I, I couldn't get out of bed because I was so depressed and so in my own head about everything. And I think those struggles and living through that and coming out on the other side is what allows me my views and how I take things on now. Yeah. So I, I, I guess you've just callous your mind or you've just done so yeah, much work. Yeah, I think just looking into myself so much and realizing that there is a different way to take it than where I was. And yeah, this is just the way I've accepted that and what I work for 
mentally and emotionally to handle everything. Holy shit. So you still do chemo and you still get that, um, the clinical trial drug, which is now FDA approved. You still actively yeah. do that. All the time. Yeah. Last week was my 123rd round of chemo oh, immunotherapy. Dude. Holy shit. And I'm guessing, th- does this keep you in like somewhat of like a weak state? Uh, yeah. Look, there, there's certain side effects because I've pretty much been on chemo or drugs for seven years now. Like the fatigue, the, uh, we call it chemo brain, like the memory, and just reactions are a little slow. And then, like I said before, mouth sores. I don't have breaks in between treatments. I have cracked lips, sores down my, like, on my gums 24-7 for about two and a half years now. Yeah. And uh, then just a few other things like neuropathy in my fingers and my feet. Like they feel like they're asleep all the time. Mm. But uh, on chemo week, it, it's about four about four days where it kind of knocks me out where I, I don't get out of bed much. Holy shit. What's the worst pain you felt in uh, associated with cancer? In the I would, I would say there's two to three tied. One was when I woke up after my first surgery, at that point you had to sign a consent form to get pain medicine. So I woke up after surgery and they hadn't gave me any pain medicine oh yet until God. I signed. And I was like, I just had my insides ripped apart and sewed back together. But they, they, as soon as I like woke up, I signed, it was two seconds later and they fully put it into my IV and it was, I was okay then. And then when I said my mom rushed me to the hospital when the stomach or cancer grew around my stomach, I ate, I tried to eat a good meal that morning and it was just sitting in there and there was so much pain and, the cancer growing. And then when my gallbladder, it quit working. And for, for something that you don't necessarily need in your body, it could cause the worst pain. Yeah. That's crazy. I honestly, if I would have woke up from that, uh, that surgery, I would have tried to kill that doctor. Yeah, so. it was, and it, it's weird. Cause it was just at a certain time, I guess it was, you know, huge in, in 2015, the epi. Uh, opioid epidemic and just the pain pills it was going crazy now people after surgery they give it to you like you signed before and you're yeah. good but at that point i think it was something new and our hospital had just got sold to a different thing so they wanted to you know be super cautious but i was like y'all just took 80 percent of my colon my small intestine and sewed me back up 20 staples and stitches down my abdomen i was like give me whatever drugs you got yeah, man. Assholes. <laughs> Shit. A bunch of assholes. I'm going to read a quote from your blog. It says, over the last seven years, I've felt and seen things that used to greatly define who I am fade away and me not chase after them. Do you feel like you're gaining who you are or do you, are you just a show? I think I've changed who I am. I'm, I'm a different person. Like, completely different than who I was before cancer. And I miss who I was before in certain ways. I miss the freedom and just the uh, kind of adventurous nature that I have and was able to have. And those are the things I think I was talking about when I don't chase after like the instant gratifications and the instant highs and the instant just 
I wanted to live life right then and now, and I don't care about the repercussions. So I think I'm a different person now. And I also think I'm a better person now than I was before. For sure. Would, what advice would you have for people who don't have cancer regarding life? Enjoy it. Don't let one or two little things that could bother you. Don't let your work or your finances or anything. I know everybody struggles with problems, but just enjoy the good times. If you wake up and you are not in pain and you are able to go to work, you're able to go out and, you know, take your kids to school and do that. Enjoy it and embrace it. Cause I mean, as bad as it sounds, I was like, your life can change in an instant. I woke up one morning and I was, you know, a, what I thought was a healthy 27 year old getting ready to should have went to work, went to a football game the night before. And I went to bed that night knowing I had cancer. Shit. Yeah. That's crazy. What do your friends think about you? Cause I, I don't, I'm, I'm going to be honest. I think you're, <laughs> you're an odd guy, man. Something doesn't yeah. click. It's like, I feel like something you should, I, I, I don't know how else to say it, but when I say you should be sad, why are yeah, you not? They, I think that my newer friends that I've met through the cancer world and stuff, they see me. This is the only note me they've ever known. The friends I've had for, you know, decades growing up with, I think they accept who I am now and they know it's different, but they also know what I've went through and they were right there with me the whole way. So they're just like, you know, who are they to judge how they would change if they've went through that? Yeah. But I definitely am a weird guy. Like I, I'm <laughs> totally, I mean, like I said, I, I was a football player in high school and, you know, back in the early two thousands, it wasn't too popular to be a full nerd, but I was a guy waiting at the bookstore to buy the new Harry Potter books at 12 o'clock at night and then going and being a star on the football field. Yeah. So I've, I've kind of always had that little bit of a weirdness about me. That's fantastic, man. That's not weird. That's awesome. <laughs> do, you, do you have any goals, any dreams? Uh, yeah. I, right now, my goal is just, just, I wouldn't even say share my story, but my story helps get the goals out there and just help, you know, raise awareness, especially for young onset colon cancer, because it is growing. Like, I'm part of this organization who puts out these statistics and tries to go and, you know, we talked to Congress about funding. And at 2030, the number one cancer killer for people under the age of 40 is going to be colorectal cancer. And that's just such a weird statistic because everybody thinks it's old people cancer. Mm. And then mental health is what I've kind of put into to try because I know how it's a struggle for everybody. And then on top of when you get cancer. And that's kind of my goal, just to break the stigmas around mental health and especially men in mental health. Yeah, that's that's a, that's actually a really good point. So what should a person like me, I'm 31 years old. I I talked to my doctor about this. I cannot get a colonoscopy until I'm like 40, 45. I can't even get checked. So what what the hell am I supposed to do? You got di you got diagnosed very young. Uh, know the symptoms and signs that would lead like uh, blood in your stool, the bowel habits, you know, black tarry stool. I know it's, it's weird to talk about stool, but that's my life with colon cancer. Yeah. And uh, just any change in your health, I would go to the doctor. And if they deny it, use your power of your like, insurance. You can always do the Cologuard, the at-home stool test. 
it's covered by insurance now, especially if you're having symptoms. And yeah. that's like my advice always is people that, because people, you know, hear what they've heard on TV shows about colonoscopies and they're scared of them. So mm-hmm. I was always like, talk to your doctor, do the Cologuard. And then if they need to, they'll send you back the recommendation where you have to go get one. Yeah, that's good advice. I, I thought it was so odd. I talked to my doctor about that. I'm like, hey, listen, I want to get screened for all this stuff. Give me a colonoscopy. I don't care. Um, and yeah, she was saying that it just doesn't make sense that it, you're too low of a risk at this young age to to get checked. It's weird. Yeah, just, I mean, they, they'll take your blood, you know, do the whole blood panel on your physical and stuff. And that's where they would be able to see if there's anything really out of the ordinary. But just as long as you, you know, you watch your body, you know whether if there's pains coming there. And really with the bowel habits, the blood in the stool yeah. is the big signs. What advice or maybe encouragement would you give to other cancer patients? That you never know when things will change. I was on my last option and then I was able to be, you know, saved by a clinical trial. But also don't hide your feelings. Don't try to live your life the way that you think you should based on other people's cancer experience or what you see on you know websites or tv shows or anything everybody's is so individualized whatever is good for you if that's being mad if that's breaking something yelling you know as long as it's okay and you're not hurting other people you get through your experience whatever way is best for you because nobody even me if to some other cancer patient, I don't know exactly what they're going through because the drugs, the cancer, all of it is so individualized. Um, I tell people just do what's best for you. Find that escape that helps you get through the day. Nice. How, how do you want to be treated? Because I think people like me who don't have cancer, I think I see people like you and I think you're awesome. I want to talk to you all the, all the <laughs> yeah. time. I, I don't know whether to treat you like just another person, like maybe a cancer patient. Should I be happy for you? Sad for you? What? Yeah, you Like I tell people all the time, you treat me how you would if you just met me and you didn't know I had cancer. Cancer is a huge part of my life. And if you get to know me very quickly, you will know I have cancer, but also it's not the defining thing. Uh, it, it It is a defining thing in my life, but it's not, something I want anybody to tiptoe around. Like I I have a very open mindset and I tell people all the time, cancer patients, you get us together. We have the darkest sense of humor you've ever known, but also at the same time, I'm not going to let somebody that don't isn't in that group say those like cancer jokes, but I'm going to laugh at them when I hear them for myself. But a lot of families have asked me of people that, you know, in their family, they get cancer. I'm like, just be yourself. Don't, tiptoe around it, talk open and be the same way you would. Like if somebody gets sick, you're going to ask them how they're feeling and how they are with the sickness. Don't try to change a relationship just because of cancer. Yeah, man, dude, you're so inspirational. Uh, where can people find you? Um, I'm on all social media, just JJ Singleton on Facebook, but my main one's Instagram where I, you know, upload pictures and kind of do my tell my story as I give a right before I walk through the doors of every chemo treatment, I say whatever's on my mind and that's kind of the 
became a thing, but uh, JJ5145 is my Instagram. And if you follow that, you're going to get linked to all my other social media. Yeah, dude, I'll put all all that's going to be in the show notes, including your blog, which I highly recommend. I've read I've read some of your social media, all of that. It's all freaking fantastic. I honestly, every time I see anything you do on social media, it doesn't matter uh, if it's simple or not. I'm just like, holy shit, let me kiss. I'm so happy. I'm so thankful that I don't have to go through what JJ has to go through today. I don't have to go through the chemo and stuff like that. If I could for one day, take my soul and my body and give it to you. I would, because I think you deserve it 10 times more than me. You kick way more ass. You're an incredible fucking person. I've never met anybody going through the shit you've gone through with the outlook. Seriously, JJ, don't ever stop being yourself because you're fucking fantastic. I appreciate it so much. And I definitely won't. It's, I'm here to stay for as long as I'm able to, and uh, people are going to get to watch and see what I get to do. And got a, got a pretty exciting year lined up already with things that I'm going to do in the cancer world and stuff. So it's, it's going to be fun. Awesome. Well, JJ, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and keep us all updated, please. Thank you so much for having me. It was an honor and I appreciate it. You the man. <laughs>